I'm delighted to be here, though. It's the first time I've been to Oklahoma, uh, so it's it's a really beautiful place, Broken Arrow and all that. Uh, I've noticed you've, you, you've, there's some, like, I don't know, city confidence lack because you've named all your streets after other cities, uh, Boulder and Denver and Cheyenne and all of this, but uh, you're a great city. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. Um, I mean... My comparison is I'm from, I live in Washington, D.C., so as long as you're not getting murdered, uh, you're doing well as a city. Uh, but, but I really have enjoyed my time here. Um, I've got this, this cooking timer here. Um, so just so my time, it's, you know, I, it's the way when you teach, you just have to count down. Otherwise, you go, Dominicans just love the sound of their voices, so we just talk forever. So I've said it to the appropriate amount. Um, Adam said an hour and a half, so I've got that on there, 90 minutes. So we'll just count that down. Um, no, it's it's shorter. It's shorter. Not much shorter though. We'll see. Um, okay, and then I need to. Where's Faustina? There she is. Okay, there you go. Okay, we'll talk about her later. Um, all the time. All the time. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about justice and mercy uh, in this talk. I'm relating that, but I'll start with. Does anyone? Because if not enough people raise hands, I'm just going to go straight into. But I'm going to try this analogy. Anyone? Les Miserables. Les Miserables. Do you know something? Have you seen it? Heard it? Whatever. Okay, great. So I want to start just because I'm going to end with this as well. Les Miserables is one of my favorite, uh, favorite books, musicals, whatever. Um, it's a great tragedy of, of, of contemporary literature, you could say, well, of at least recent literature. And tragedy is a situation where it's a story about someone trying to deal with uh, incompatible things and the downfall at the end of it. And Les Miserables' main character, of course, is struggling with dealing how to solve insolvable problems, seemingly. And of course, it ends with him throwing himself, uh, unfortunately, into the, the Seine, into the river and drowning. Uh, and you might say, wait, Valjean does not die at the end of Les Miserables. But for me, Les Miserables, the Valjean is not that interesting. He's, he's just trying to do his best. Javert, Javert, the police inspector, He's the most interesting character to me, always has been, because he's trying to make sense of this world where he's been living based upon justice and applying justice as best. And there's nothing wrong with justice. And yet there is this immovable figure, Valjean, in the situation that he can't figure out how to square with. So I just set that up because people think the problem with Les Miserables, or the main part of Les Miserables, the interesting part, is Valjean's like struggle. But I think for us, at least for me, the real question is, how does mercy relate to justice? And the answer for Javert is he can't figure out how. He can't figure out how, and he despairs of that. But hopefully I want to say how mercy can relate to justice. I'm a Dominican, so there'll be absolutely no practical advice here. <laughs> this talk will be largely useless in anything like that. Um, it'll be mostly a speculative reflection. But, you know, maybe accidentally something practical will come from it. We're going to find out. So, uh, just warn you, the expectation levels are good. Justice is, of course, a big topic. And so, I'm just going to make a few comments about it, basically. I'm just going to walk through and make some random comments about justice. Um, and to help us to reflect, I think, on how to grow in the virtue of justice, okay, and the virtue of mercy. Uh, the topic is justice and mercy. My aim is to reframe this such that by the end you realize that it is impossible to understand and practice justice without mercy. So the title should really be Mercy 
and justice and mercy again. It's like a justice sandwich, okay, with mercy being, but it's, since mercy is so much, usually the, the bread is not that interesting. So think of it like those McGriddles. I remember those who were growing up when you had like the McDonald's sandwich that had a sausage and thing, and then it had, you know, the two pancakes, the McGriddle thing in it. So that's, or like there was this, when I was in Novitia, there was this thing called the double down in K- KFC, where it was bacon and then two fried chicken patties were the bread for it. Um, that's what we're talking about, because mercy is better, so that sandwich failed miserably. Um, but hopefully this one won't, okay? So mercy, justice, and mercy. Um, for mercy founds justice, or grounds it, and it also stabilizes justice. That's my two kind of claims. Mercy grounds justice, can't have justice without mercy to begin, and it stabilizes justice. You can't practice justice without mercy. I'm gonna cash this out in uh, at points one. I'm gonna start by just defining justice. Then we're gonna look at um, the ground of justice. Okay, and then we're gonna look at justice as a virtue. All right, uh, and then finally we'll go to how mercy stabilizes justice. So justice, definition, mercy, justice, mercy. I'm gonna end with St. John Paul II's Reflection on Dives and Misericordia, and St. Faustina uh, and Javert, three characters who are not generally included together. Um, uh, I want to make sense of his claim in Dives in Misericordia uh, that he says justice is not enough. Justice is not enough. Okay, let's start. Uh, classical definition of justice is justitia, is suum quique, which is what is due, rendering what is due. Justice is the act of rendering what is due to the other. It's an other-focused act. Now, there's two aspects to it. Dominicans love distinctions. Okay, so I just want to break these out. There's objective justice, and then there's subjective justice. Now, these are not what you think they are. Objective justice is the just object, the use, the just object. It's a sort of product. It's a thing in the world. The objective justice is the just thing. Um, The subjective justice is the action of justice. I'm going to explain these, but it's the subjective aspect. It doesn't mean the subjective like your justice, my justice, their justice, toad justice. No, no. There's only one justice. Okay? It's justice. It means the location of it. So subjective justice means the sense of justice in the agent located in the subject, okay? So where is justice? Well, for Catholics, for us, it's in the subject, the just man, or the action, the just act. We tend to think about justice as being some kind of object in the world, like some sort of relations, but I'm gonna, we need to rethink that. It's not, we're, subjective justice is what we care about. Okay, here's the important point, which I'll make in this later part. Again, we focus on the subjective part, But the more important part for us is the subjective growth and holiness, doing justice and being disposed to do it when we have to. In a sense, the modern world is wary of getting internal. It doesn't like the subjective aspect, this part of it. Whatever you do in your soul is your business. That's what it says. But that's not the way of Catholic morality. Your soul matters a lot for everyone around, and especially for you. So I'll say more about that, but just hold on to that thing. I want to start with the objective, justice, okay? So this is a fundamental point, that justice 
is a reactive or responsive sort of thing, right? It's rendering what is due, the justice to give what is due to someone, um, which means it has to come after there being something due. You can't just start justing as a verb without having something actually due, right? Justice is a responsive thing. It comes after the decision about what is due. The jus, the right, the just, is prior to justice. It's the first three letters, after all, you could say. You can't have justice without use, right? Joseph Pieper, in his uh, Four Cardinal Virtues, which is a great book, by the way, just leave here and read that book instead, um, he says, at this juncture, it must be clear that no obligation to do justice exists unless it has as its presupposition this idea of the due, the right, the suum. This is the meaning of the proposition, now the just is the object of justice. The object of justice means that it's the thing in the world that's due. Two important points about this, okay? One regarding God, and then everything else. With regard to God, this means that God owes no one anything in justice. If justice presupposes a just due, premise one, and God creates everything out of nothing, right, then creation is not an act of justice. And therefore, there is nothing owed to anything in creation by God. Pieper says, this means that in relationship of God to man, there cannot be justice in the strict sense. God owes man nothing. This is a crucial point, and it's the first point of why mercy matters. It means that justice is not grounded in justice. Justice has to start somewhere and has to start in mercy. Or if you're a stickler in mercy being merely responsive, then love. Justice, the virtue of fairness and order and due and balancing scales and calculation, all the things that the modern world cares about, only comes about because of none of those things. It only becomes because of a free choice of God. Justice, this equality, is founded in inequality, the free choice. Without God's creation of ex nihilo, out of nothing, for no reason but his desire, nothing due, the foundation of the world order, which justice is about, setting up this, and the natures and all of that, which justice depends, there could be no justice without his freedom. So just as in some sense you are from nothing, but God's free act, you only exist because God freely chose you to do this, to be here, so too justice itself is from nothing but God's free act. Said otherwise, there is no justice in God, and before creation there was only God. So justice, unlike, say, mathematics, is not eternal, but created. And its creation is not in response to anything outside of it. Justice is a product of love, which, of course, is another name for mercy. I'll make this point here. Um, why do I say love and mercy is related to this? Well, this is a Faustina point. As you know, Faustina says that the greatest attribute of God is mercy. But before she says that, she says this. 
the third, that's in Diary 301, I think. This is Diary 180. The third attribute of God, most important one, is love and mercy. And I understand that the greatest attribute is love and mercy. It unifies the creator, creature with the creator. Now, what's interesting about this is love and mercy are two things. And she says the greatest attribute is love and mercy. And you might think, well, she's just an uneducated poor sister, so she just, you know, doesn't know how to pair up her grammatical stuff. It should be our greatest attributes are this. But it's not true if you know Polish. I, this is, I, I preach to, uh, to sisters' congregations. Of, I love uh, Faustina. It's a longer story about how I met her as a Protestant when I was 14. But I preach to the, the Faustina sisters, and, uh, and so I've had to, I really try to do Polish with them a bit. That is a language and a half. If anyone knows Polish, it is just, you're staring at like 20 consonants in a row, and you just freak out. Um, but in Polish, unlike any other language, maybe you don't know this, I've never noticed this, unlike any other language, so for us in Latin, Love is caritas, all right, uh, and and mercy is misericordiae, you know, love and mercy for English. All the languages are like this, except for Polish. For Polish, love and mercy are the same root word. Love is miłość, and mercy is miłość szerja. Szerja is the heart; it's a deepening. So when she says the third attribute is love and mercy. She's speaking about the same thing. It's love and love further. Love and love deeper. She's just, it's not, mercy is just an extension of love. All right? Two different things. Miwoch and miwocherja. I wish, why would people say this? Everyone's like, ah, mercy can't be the greatest attribute. Love has to be. To a Polish sister, the same. Okay. So, justice is founded in this act of love, gratuitousness, which is a mercy. And we can get into that question about how it is mercy there, but it involves the divine ideas and possible beings and all that. Don't worry about it. Um, but just take my word for it. The second thing that's important about this is nothing is owed justice except rational creatures. Why? Because only rational creatures can possess or own things. Only they can act freely. Remember, justice is found in an act of freedom that sets up justice. And that's true for us too. So to set up the justice before you can respond to it has to be an act of freedom to choose something. All right? The second point is important because we assume that everything just has rights and claims of justice just by existing, really existing, right? That rights are things that, you know, rocks have, dogs have, animals have, cars, what, you know, who knows what they're gonna to give to rights now, but just, just existing means you have a right. No, no, existing means you have inertia, like you're hard to push. But a right is a, is a rational thing, it requires freedom. Rights are things only spiritual or rational creatures can claim. Now, this argument initially sounds a little weird, all right? Um, but if you think about what ownership is as collecting things, then you might think that it's, well, it's, it's like squirrels. Well, obviously, squirrels have rights um, since they collect nuts for winter, right? And that's their property. But the ownership of a squirrel and nuts is not the same as the ownership between, like, you and your house. That has, like, a deed, and it has this kind of contract, which is between... Three rational beings that voluntarily enter. Squirrels do not do this. You do not see squirrels running to, to, to an acorns and going, I take these, you take these, let's talk about it. Or, for instance, if you take their acorns, I don't know how you do this, but say you take their acorns, they don't go to the, running to the lawyer. They're like, I've got rights that have been violated, right? 
what do they do? They just grab more nuts, you know? And they're not like woeful, like, oh my gosh, all the nuts are gone. I have to... They're just doing squirrel stuff. This is what... Oh, no nuts. Who knew? In fact, who am I? I'm not anything. They're just little things, okay? So they don't have... It's not like when you take nuts from them, you're stealing from them. Because they don't have any rights to those nuts, okay? Ownership, to own something, is really about setting goals and freedom, self-setting goals, and only rational creatures can do that. The great the philosopher, Immanuel Kant, is helpful here, uh, since he follows St. Thomas, as all right-thinking people do, in attributing rights only to rational creatures, to persons. Why? Because only they have control over their destinies and freedom. Squirrels don't go, what will I be today? What squirrel university should I go to? They're just squirreling. That's just what they do. All right, humans choose. And because if you thwart someone's freedom by violating their rights that they've set up, then you're thwarting them as a person. All right? So animals have rights. Now, very quick note to all those of you who are going, wait a minute, so you're telling me that I can just go punch deer for no reason? And it's not a, no, do not, you cannot punch deer for no reason. Even if it wasn't also dangerous to punch deer. Okay, don't do it. It just means that you ought to understand to whom you are really being unjust in deer punching, okay? It's not the deer. Now, it's harmful to the deer, but it's not unjust, right? The justice is due to a person. Why is it important? Because who's the person in the deer punching violation? Well, I assume it's God, right? God cares about deer and doesn't want them punched. Otherwise, he would make them easier to punch, okay? So, but it's silly to say the deer have rights and that's why we can't violate them. No, it's really about God and then the, the, the animals and why you care about animals because of God. The justice, it's really important why we be precise about this and why we make clear about what justice is, is because justice is an iron law, as Javert knows. It's a very iron law. And if you give justice, grant justice to something that doesn't deserve it, it is difficult to get it back. Think of the governmental program and permissions with children and such, all right? or, or your permissions with children. It's hard to pull something back when you establish a right and realize it wasn't a right to have. It's just hard to downsize government. Believe me, I know. There's so many new buildings. No idea. My father, my father is dri always drives in the city. He says, I don't know what they're making here, but it must be really great. And it's like, no, it's really horrible. We just gave them the ability to do this. Okay, so removing things, removing things that people thought they had, like if you, you know, you know this with, with children, I suppose, right? You set up, these are rules, and you say, now we've got to change the rules. That's not fair. They're calling to justice. They just don't realize that it's not, you know, you're not being unjust to them, you know, even if you're not punching them. Okay, so it's really important to get this fact, what, what, who sets up justice, that set up an act of freedom, ultimately in an act of love of God, Right? And therefore, whenever we speak about justice, we're really talking about the interaction between rational others, even though that includes, well, of course, non-rational things. Okay? God is the, not the only source of justice. He's rather the ultimate source of justice. He's the reason why we can set up justice. And the connection of freedom is helpful here. God and rational creatures are both free. Right? God is, of course, the source and cause of our freedom. Nevertheless, we are free, as opposed to rocks and plants and birds. In the same way, 
God and rational creatures are sources of just claims, sources of rights, even though God is the cause of these creaturely rights. Nevertheless, we are, we do create claims of justice and make claims on others that don't immediately involve God, right? even if God ends up bankrolling all justice claims. That's true, right? Because he has to set up in the first place, natures. Okay, so recap. So we began with the distinction between justice as rendering what is due to the other. And we said, wait a minute, who's the other? Rational creatures and freedom. We've looked at the use, the justice, how it's set up. It's grounded in the free act of creation and then in the free response to how we deal with creation and our ownership, setting up rights, which we'll get to in specifics. Um, such that the foundation of justice is actually God's love, ultimately. Ultimately, the only reason justice exists is because God loves. That's it. Right? Justice can't get itself going. It needs love to begin and set the terms. Uh, this means that strict justice must always have, important, strict justice must always have a little voice in the background reminding it of its humble and lovable origins. It's a good reminder since, as you know, justice likes to forget that it was birthed and forged in love in our hearts and otherwise. Okay, let's switch over to the subjective parts with the more interesting things. The virtue of justice. Okay, which means the location of justice as a virtue. If you're looking for justice, right, you're looking for justice, where is it? Where do you find it? Well, you find it in the person acting justly. Right, that's where the virtue of justice is. And this is true of all the virtues, but it's an important point because it goes against a common modern conception of morality and virtue in general. This is really, justice is one of the most important uh, virtues in morality. Um, and so if, you, if we get this wrong, we get all of morality wrong, right? So let me just say something about comparing, this is a general point about the difference between how we generally conceive of morality, I'm gonna call it objective rule morality, with subjective virtue morality. Okay, so it's an important point. Okay. Um, uh, perhaps the main difference between objective rule morality and subjective virtue morality is between the external and the internal locations of morality. See, objective rule morality, morality as like rules, objective rules, sees morality as about the external world, right? As if morality were some kind of special physics, where we were worried about the collision of moral particles, right? Physics is about the Physical particles, neutrons, positrons, electrons, bosons, fermions, all that. But sometimes we think of mor moral morality in the same way. It governs certain external forms. Moral particles, what do we, we call those? Morons, okay? <laughs> so then the key to morality in this conception, which I think, which believe me, I think is ours, just in general as moderns, because we love the sciences, is the making sure that morons respect the appropriate moral laws. Just like we need to map out how positrons and electrons respect their laws, morons need to be respect, follow their laws. We need to figure out what, what are the laws of morons? What are moral mechanics, right? And morality then, to being a good person, is to figuring out, like a scientist, mapping out these moral equations, right? Which morons are supposed to follow. Just like photons and neutrons and electrons follow their own equations. Right? So like F equals MA is an equation for physical particles. And do unto others what they have done to you is a moral law. And you say, well, one has math, but I just spoke it. And we just turn the other one into, I don't know, DX to Y is the same as DY to X. That's just the equation for the golden rule, right? Now, this sort of conception of morality is literally moronic, 
Okay, but it's the one that we tend to focus on since we're all modern scientists, I, whether we like it or not, right? If you've ever played with a Bunsen burner, which I suspect most of you have, and you're a scientist and you can wear a coat, okay? Now, traditional morality, subjective virtue morality, Catholic morality, uh, is different conception. It's not about morons colliding, although they do, right? It's about agents acting. See, morons and moral mechanics is a passive kind of like, get them organized, right? And they just, whereas virtues are about the dynamism of actually an agent choosing to act in a particular way. And the failure is in the acting. When you're immoral, your failure is not, is not so much something on the world, but rather your misaction. This is why the virtues are so important to cultivate and pay attention to, your internal dispositions. Uh, so that you can act well spontaneously. It is also why, this is important, sinners are to be pitied and prayed for, since they really are hurting themselves more than anyone else. Injustice is located most in the injuster, the one who commits injustice, not the injustee. Another way of seeing that is that while there may be redeeming value in suffering, I think we're all committed to that because of the whole cross business, okay? There is no redeeming value at all in causing suffering. Jesus Christ's redemption on the cross shows the fundamental possibility of redemption of an evil act, but he is not the one who committed that evil. He merely redeemed it. Such is the importance of Christianity to morality in that it allows that evil suffered can be turned to good through prayer and virtuous activity. But under no circumstances evil to be done, since there is no way for an evil act to be good at all of itself, even if there might be good outcomes or aspects of it. O Felix Culpa, O Happy Fault, we pray at the Easter Vigil. If a moral act is evil, it is not to be done. If one has the possibility of suffering evil versus not suffering evil, well, sometimes one ought to suffer the evil, especially if the only way to avoid that would be to commit an evil oneself. Think of the martyrs in this. See, injustice is really about the injuster, I said. If injustice is, and justice are located in the agent, then the fundamental damage done in injustice this is why it's so weird to modern conceptions. Because we generally think of injustice as like, ah, oh, you broke my house and stole my property or took that squirrel's nuts, right? That's, that's a product of injustice. But injustice is the one who acted unjust, unjustly. And the damage is done ultimately to their souls. Because who knows? Maybe the squirrel shouldn't have had that extra nuts. And maybe that building had to be knocked down. And maybe a greater good can be brought out of that other thing. But the damage done to the unjuster, the sinner, that's the issue. Injustice is in the in unjust agent, not the unjustly treated patient, first and foremost. Now, two points to this, action points, you could say. And I'm going to say one because the other one's not interesting. It's, it's about Kant and God. Um, the first is, this is why we pray for those who commit injustice. For there's no other way for them to be made right than by God's forgiveness, since they have ultimately offended him, the one who set up justice, 
and are in danger of losing their souls given the damage they've caused themselves in acting unjustly. Just a very different conception of justice, but it's, it's important to know. And it makes sense with the Christian tradition, otherwise it doesn't, I don't know. Okay, let's get into the weeds a little bit on these, so what are the kinds of acts of justice? So, you're acting justly. Well, that general sort condition here is thought about. We've got that. Now we turn to the practices of justice. How do you practice justice? What kind of types are there? Again, if you think this is going to get practical, don't worry, it's not. It just looks like it is, but it's not. Um, what kind of actions are just actions or just actings? Uh, the tradition points to three. There's three types of uh, just actions. These are good. Commutative, distributive, and legal justice. Okay, commutative. They all have to do with a relationship between either horizontal or vertical levels. Right? Commutative justice is the relationship of one, remember justice is about giving to the other, one individual to the other. It's the order of parts to parts. It's the horizontal thing from person A to person B. Okay? This is what most people, by the way, think about when they think about justice. What is owed to me by that guy? All right? Murder, for instance, falls in this, that's not a just act, okay? Murder, for instance, is technically an act of involuntary commutative injustice because he didn't want it to happen to him. It's commutative injustice because it's against another person, it's injustice because you ought not to do it, and it's involuntary because he's not happy about it, okay? Generally don't call it that because it sounds too, too you know, technical. Um, but it's in this way. This is one that we can think less about. It's not as important for us to think about because we all learned it as kids, right? Everyone knows this. It's basically fairness kind of tracks this. So community justice, though, is a, it's in a matter of constant work. And we cultivate the habit of living this horizontal justice to each other um, by focusing on what we really owe to those other people. And it's important because all acts, of all acts are involved in justice that are outside of us in a way. And we need to restore order to injustice done. Nevertheless, there is a sad truth about this commutative justice, which I suspect if you're over the age of five, um, you've realized. The balance in commutative justice will never be perfect. Pieper says, the dynamic character of man's communal life finds its image within the very structure of every act of justice. The basic act of commutative justice is restitu restitution, restitution, the very word implies it's never possible for men to realize an ideal or definitive condition. This is really important to being well attuned to what justice is. And it means this sad truth. There is no justice this side of heaven. There's no justice this side of heaven. If you want it, you have to work for it. But know that it will not come about in its entirety in this side. Why? Because justice is not a mathematical or physical relation that we can get right because of abstract nature or empirical realities like physics. Justice is a matter of persons relating to persons, subjective element of justice. And persons in a sinful state will almost always relate unjustly in some capacity to each other. The world is unjust not, is not a cause then for concern, at least philosophically speaking. It doesn't bother me. Um, not to be more unjust, but like it's not surprising because the world understood as a sinful world still means that it's a statement of a tautology. It's just true by itself. The sinful world is sinful, and therefore it will not be perfectly just. I remember I was in D.C., and it was a march, political march, and someone was wearing a shirt that said, Justice or Else. And I just thought, 
I don't know. We're going to go with that. What else, right? I mean, like, you're not going to, we're not going to get justice. Are you kidding me? You know, do you look around? Okay. Um, so what's up for, and I don't think the other thing was like hamburgers. Okay. It seemed like it would be a lot worse. Okay. So community justice. Important to remember there that we have to work at it all the time. It's a constant battle, constant struggle, but it's not, it's, it's an uphill one. Okay. Let's go to distributive justice. This is the vertical relationship of wholes to parts. Commutative is justice part to part, you to me, whatever. This is the whole to the part. This is kind of like called social justice, right? But don't get like, don't think of the social justice warriors kind of stuff, okay? Um, this is an important aspect of justice because it's real. There are wholes and there are parts and they need to be related. And one way is going from the whole to the part. See, the whole, the community of persons, owes something to its parts. Why? Because the parts are persons too. It's a mistake, of course, to think that distributive justice, like distribution is equivalent to socialism. You know, and all of you maybe, I don't know this audience, but I'm always a little, oh, what a... No, social justice is just the matter of the social whole giving to each individual of society what he or she deserves. Of course, the realm of political, this is why, when you, pra you practice social justice, distributive justice, when you vote, basically, unless you're in authority, right? Politics is about distributive justice, what the state owes to the individual. And the devil, of course, is in the details. What does the state owe to you and me, right? Something, since we're persons with ownership, and therefore there's justice. But what? Free toad gardens? Probably not. I would love that. Uh, the danger in politics, and why it's very careful when you vote for these things, is, again, that you don't offer people what they are not owed, even if it might be good. Because justice can't come back. It's an iron law. It needs to be sandwiched by mercy, but not replaced by mercy, right? And of course, here comes the vexed in issue of like equality and equity. Well, those are hard things we have to think about because it's sometimes for the social whole, someone's just better earning money. It would be silly for me, for you to give me lots of money. I wouldn't know what to do with it. I would buy books and lose it, okay? Just give that to more important people. All right, so distributive justice is how you think about the politics. And it's very important to to see that justice is something owed, not something that you want to give to someone, okay? The final one, though, is legal justice, and that's the vertical relationship of the parts to the whole. This is the not as exciting one, because everyone wants stuff from the whole, gimme, 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 right? But this one's like takey, 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 okay? This is the relationship uh, of moving from the whole, what the whole asks of us. What does the community, the society ask of us, okay? It is what we owe as individuals, as parts of the common good, to the common good itself. Now, before we get into that, it's important to realize this is where the rubber meets the road in how you conceive of the common good. I'm a sort of libertarianishly inclined person. Um, so this aspect of justice is always a little bit sketchy to me because I tend to think individuals. But unfortunately, for me, libertarianly inclined Catholics are just brought up short here. Okay, I can't follow Ron Paul or Murray Rothbard or Milton Friedman all the way. But the common good in the Catholic Church is just something that's real. There's a thing that's a part that's greater than the parts and not reducible to it. And since it is a thing, a community of persons, then we owe things to it. Now, it's hard to explain this philosophically. It's really tricky for me, at least. But it makes sense that there are these holes that we owe things to. Right? I'll give you just a couple. Uh, family. I owe my family, the Chapmans, things in honor and justice that I don't owe to any individual member of that family qua individual. 
You know, that's not what our family does. This makes perfect sense to me. I owe something to my family, even if I don't owe it to my dad, my mom, my brother, sister individually, but I owe the family this thing, right? My family exists as a family, even if it's not another person. It's not like my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, myself, and my family. Third, sixth person, weird, okay? But legal injustice involves my obligation as members of my family. There are certain obligations there. This is why it matters whether when you owe just, when X owes justice to Y, it matters whether X is just a random person and Y is a random person, or X is a child and Y is a parent. Children owe parents things that I don't owe to sister, right? Because of the fact that they're members of a family. Another one is country. It's another social whole. Our country can demand the ultimate sacrifice, not for any given individuals, but for the whole country. Right? This is what dying for freedom is sort of talking about, the American way or whatever. The country can demand of you that you die for it, not for like individual people. Like you don't, when you become a soldier, you don't say, well, die for Adam, but uh, for America? No, you, it makes sense to talk about this because your country birthed you in a way. And ultimately God, he's the ultimate shared common good. He's the source and the end of all things. And thus we owe him justice. Not just love, but justice. Religion is the virtue that owes him that. He demands it not as a person, but as God. No person can demand worship, but God as a person who is the kind of person he is, he's a divine person, he does. This means, of course, that prayer is a political problem because politic politics is about justice and your relationship to God is a matter of justice, legal justice. I want to end, oh, sorry. The interesting thing about this, before I switch, finally end with, with uh, Mercy and Javert and, and Faustina, and Pieper makes this point, it's a good one, is that these legal justice commitments cannot be actually fulfilled entirely. This is an important part about your obligations and justice owed to your parents, your country, and your God. Thomas Aquinas makes this the virtue of piety, pietas, and he says you can never repay this entirely. Right, you're never able to. Strictly speaking, we simply cannot fulfill our debt of what is owed to these realities. We can only do the best we can. Pieper says, there are some obligations which by their very nature cannot be acquitted in full, much as the one who is thus indebted may be willing to do so. And he says that these, interestingly enough, you think these might be the oddball relationships. You know, the weird, most of us, we can fulfill justice. But he makes the point actually, the very relationships which are characterized by this disparity are also the ones most fundamental for our human existence. What's more fundamental to your human existence in matters of justice than your family, your country, and your God? Right? So justice in itself has this inability to just respond, which is the fundamental point, a good place to turn now again to the final piece of toast. That justice will never be fulfilled, that instead on giving it up, one is pushed to love and mercy because of this fundamental inability to fulfill justice in the strictest ways. Pieper says, the just man who has more keenly felt experience of these inadequacies, the more fully realizes that his very being is a gift from mercy. And he is heavily indebted before God and man. He is also the man willing to give where there is no strict obligation. 
he will be willing to give another man something no one can compel him to give because he recognizes in his own virtues of justice and repaying his fundamental debts, he has fallen and will fall short. He cannot give back to God, family, or country what they've given to him. I began this talk with the tragedy of Javert. I want to end with it. Because the tragedy is not really about justice. He has, it's not that he can't figure out what justice ought to be. It's about mercy. He doesn't know how to realize or doesn't see that mercy is a part of justice and founds it and stabilizes it. He's trying to come to, to terms with the need for mercy as a complement to justice, and he can't make sense of it. There's a beautiful passage uh, at the end in the chap book 4, chapter 1, Javert derailed. Hugo writes, A whole new order, this is after he's released uh, Valjean, he doesn't know why he's done it, he spontaneously responded to releasing Valjean and letting him go ahead and, uh, and go back and dream Marius back home. This is a whole new, world, new order of unexpected acts surged up and subjugated him. A whole new world appeared to his soul, kindness accepted in return, devotion, misericordiae, leniency, the havoc wreaked on austerity by piety, acceptance of other people, no more definitive condemnation, no more damnation, the possibility of a tear purling in the eye of the law. A possibility of the tear purling in the eye of the law. Some indefinable sense of justice according to God's rules that was the reverse of justice according to man. He saw in the darkness that terrifying sun of an unknown morality dawning, and he was appalled and dazzled by it. The whole new world, that undefinable sense of justice according to God's rules, is of course the mercy of God. In Divis and Misericordia, St. John Paul II writes, The experience of the past and of our own time demonstrates that justice is not enough, and that it can even lead to the negation and destruction of itself, as it did for Javert. If that deeper power which is love, mercy, miwash, is not allowed to shape human life in its very dimensions. It has been precisely the historical experience that, among other things, has led to the formulation of the saying, sumum ius summa injuria, everything just, everything unjust. The last line, this is paradoxical. It is the indefinable sense that Vera is working towards and is the revelation of the mercy of God before and after being the just one. John Paul goes on, The true, mer true mercy is, so to speak, the most profound source of justice. If justice is in itself suitable for arbitration between people concerning the reciprocal distribution of objective goods in an inequitable manner, bleh, uh, that's community justice, love and only love including that kindly love that we call mercy, see, love that we call mercy, Polish, Polish Pope, okay, Miłosz and Miłosz Sierdzia, is capable of restoring man to himself. Love and only love, mercy, is capable of restoring man to himself. Mercy that is truly Christian is also, in a certain sense, the most perfect incarnation of equality, what you really are, between people, and therefore also the most perfect incarnation of justice stabilizes it, draws it back to the reminder of what it is. As well, insofar as justice aims at the same result in its own sphere. St. Faustina, of course, I think I'm going to end with her, gives a beautiful image of this in her diary. Uh, and it's this, mercy as the flower of love. Mercy as the flower of love and justice flowing from love. Such that mercy and justice are two different flowers. She says, oh, incomprehensible God, 
How great is your mercy, Miwashidja. Mercy is the flower of love. God is love and mercy is his deed. He acts out of love and mercy only. In love it is concealed. In mercy it is revealed. Everything I look at speaks to me of God's mercy. Even God's very mercy speaks to me about his, sorry, even God's very justice speaks to me about his fathomless mercy because justice flows from love. Miwoshi. Thank you. The Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast is brought to you by the Office of Communications at the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma.